0: The following is a -er Cartoonerific Studios presentation.
1: Welcome to Cartoon Fun, it's -er Cartoonerific, yeah!
2: Well, welcome to the Cartoonrific Podcast, Classic Animated Cartoons. I'm Brian Mitchell, and I am your host. Well, if you've been following the Cartoonrific Podcast over the last 20-some-odd episodes, you notice that we've been focusing a lot on other studios. We've talked about Hanna-Barbera. We've talked about Total TV Cartoons to Patty Freeling. We've talked about a lot of different studios. Uh, Warner Brothers, the new Warner Brothers studio, a little bit about the old Warner Brothers studio, talked about a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, we've done a few things that have been uh, interviews with people that worked at Disney. Uh, Bill Waldman is one that comes to mind. Uh, Matt Bates uh, worked at Disney for a little bit. And uh, then we did one show where we we're just talking about the the early features from Steamboat Willie to the early features. And and uh, they've all been interesting shows. But I, I don't think we really delved into Disney in a, in a big way. So, uh, And and part of the reason for that is there's so many podcasts out there about Disney. I mean, you can go to Disney Plus and learn some stuff about Disney right there. But uh, there are podcasts that focus on the theme parks, so they focus on the animated movies or live-action movies or Marvel or whatever. So I really didn't want... To be uh, clumped into that, I didn't want this to be known as a Disney uh, a podcast about Disney or Disney films. I wanted it to be about the whole spectrum of the classic cartoon animation. So uh, that's why it kind of stayed away a little bit. But today, that's ending. We're we're going to be talking about Walt Disney today, and uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, the films that were made in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s at uh, the Walt Disney Studio. Uh, The one thing I want to make clear, which some people don't even know, because if you don't really go into the history of it, um, you may not be aware of how important Disney was to the animation business. You know, at the time when Disney was just coming into it in the 1920s, the animation business was pr- primarily in New York. There were a couple of studios here. You had um, uh, you had uh, a studio doing Felix the Cat. You had uh, the Max Fleischer studio doing Coco the Clown cartoons. And you had Moser uh, Terry, which later became Terry Tunes, uh, doing their own cartoons. And so these, these were the major studios in New York. And it was primarily, primarily a New York industry, uh, the animation business. But everybody was doing kind of the same thing. And Disney had seen those films. He had watched those films. And he was determined that if he was going to be successful in that profession of animation, that his films had to be better. So uh, Disney was working out of uh, Kansas City. Uh, he had a bunch of people there that were very talented. Uh, First feeling was working with him, Abai Works, and two gentlemen, uh, Hugh Harmon and uh, Rudolf Eising. Uh These two gentlemen and Abai Works and First feeling would be uh, instrumental in creating all the Hollywood studios and even with uh, Disney's creation, Oswald the Rabbit, uh, which was distributed by Universal Pictures back in the 20s, that ended up getting into the hands of a man named Walter Lance, who ended up doing Woody Woodpecker cartoons. But uh, all those gentlemen, Friz Frilling, ended up working for Warner Brothers. He didn't set up the studio. It was actually Harmon and Ising who set up the Warner Brothers studio, cartoon studio, for Leon Schlesinger. And when they had some sort of a falling out a couple of years later, MGM hired them to set up the MGM cartoon studio. So harmonizing, setting up the Warner Brothers cartoon studio with Friz Freeling pretty much staying there. And then harmonizing, going to MGM, setting up that studio. There you go. All the major studios are represented there. And they were all off of things started by Disney. So Oswald the Lucky Rabbit became a universal property and then uh, it was Walter Lance heading that up. So the Walter Lance studio harmonizing, setting up the Warner Brothers studio and which ended up becoming Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies and then them moving over to uh, MGM to start up their own studio there, which eventually ended up making Tom and Jerry's and uh, Droopy cartoons. Now of iWorks, started his own studio and it wasn't very successful. The stories weren't that great, although the quality was good. He ended up going back to Disney in the late thirties. And it was actually a really good thing that that happened because of Iwerks was instrumental in creating all the processes from Fanta sound to, uh, the, uh, Matt, uh, the mat process, that they ended up using uh, audio animatronics. He was instrumental in. I mean, there were a lot of different things that Ub Iwerks uh, developed at Disney, and he won awards for this stuff. Uh, it was actually a great thing that Ub Iwerks went back to Disney. So Disney was the powerhouse, he was the guy. And whether he, he didn't help start those studios, but he was trying to make his cartoons better, and he forced the industry to kind of rise and compete. And so everybody else's cartoons got better. They went in different directions, but it's because of Disney pushing for quality. Disney inadvertently, because he was striving for quality, he was striving for better acting in the animation and better quality in the animation and more uh, believability in that, ended up inspiring a lot of people. One of our guests, Willie Ito, was inspired by... Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and decided that's what he wanted to do. And I think most animators we got into the business not because we just like cartoons, but there was something that really spoke out to us that inspired us to get into the business. And for me that was I say all the time, it was The Jungle Book, but it was a lot of different things. I think the culmination was The Jungle Book for me and then later on The Rescuers. And that's a that's a long story, but it's uh, it's interesting nonetheless. But as I talk to people about how they got into the business, it's always one film that kind of just put it over the top for them, and normally at a very young age. So I find that very, very interesting. So anyway, the guest we have on today is a man who's no different from most people who got into this wacky world of animation, Uh, He became a directing animator at Disney. He worked on some of the most famous Disney films in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. His name is Dave Pruxma, and he's coming up right after this. Don't go away.
0: -er Cartoonerific is the place to be to celebrate hand-drawn animated cartoons. The -er Cartoonerific podcast features interviews with the magic makers behind your favorite animated cartoons with episodes uploaded every Friday. Or visit the -er Cartoonerific blog featuring articles about classic cartoon animation. At the -er Cartoonerific Gallery, view original animation art and memorabilia from your favorite animated films and TV shows. The company store features exclusive swag from the Cartoonerific universe. And coming soon, brand new world premiere cartoons on the Cartoonerific channel. It's all here. Join the fun at www.cartoonerific.com. That's Cartoon, E-R-I-F-I-C dot com. It's Cartoonerific, saving the universe one funny cartoon at a time. And now it's time for our special Cartoonerific guest.
2: What can I say about our next guest? Uh, he, uh, he started at Disney in the early 80s. He worked on Mickey's Christmas Carol. I uh, moved up to animator on The Great Mouse Detective. Ended up uh, working as an animator on Oliver and Company, The Little Mermaid, Rescues Down Under, and then was promoted to supervising animator on Beauty and the Beast. He is a phenomenal animator. He's uh, worked for Disney until about 2001, uh, 2002, I'm sure he's going to correct me. Um, but he is, uh, he's a sensational animator and he should be a Disney legend. He is in my mind. Anyway, please welcome Mr. Dave Pruksma. Hi Dave. How are you doing today?
3: Hi, thank you. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. So what got you started What, what influenced you to kind of get you into the field of animated cartoons?
3: I don't know. You know, I guess like a lot of other people in the field, I was just kind of born for it because at a very early age, I really liked cartoons. Cartoons were, um, theatrical cartoons were waning down in the late fifties and early sixties when I was coming of age. But, um, Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of animation on television, uh, especially new animation. Like they, uh, they had a Barbera primetime animation, Flintstones, Jetsons, Top Cat, uh, right. Johnny Quest, things like that. Uh, it was still very prevalent, but in a different way. You know, a- advertising had a lot of animation. Um, and I always really resonated with it. Um, and, you know, I've told the story before, but, you know, color was just starting to come in on television. And, you know, of course, the Walt Disney show had their wonderful world of color Uh, And occasionally, they would show a feature. uh, And one night in 1964, they showed Alice in Wonderland in color. Oh, wow. Uh, And our neighbors invited us down to watch it in color, and I was completely blown away. And I turned to my parents. I was seven years old at the time, and I go, I want to do that. (laughs) And they would just look at me like, what? And I go, I want to make animated films like that. Right. Now, I didn't think much more about it than that, but, you know, I would do the little flip books, like – in your um, when you're supposed to be listening in class, and you're animating little stick men in the corners of your textbooks, and then flipping yeah. through it and making it move. Someone taught me how to do that, and I was off. And uh, as soon as I could get a movie camera, I started doing little animated super eight films.
2: Yeah, I was doing the same thing.
3: Yeah, and I you mean, know, a lot of us were. <laughs>
2: It's weird because, uh, this profession, you know, I I don't know of too many professions like that where people, you know, you get a kid and he kind of knows what he wants to do at age five or six or seven, you know, to actually just say that. Mm -hmm. Because I said that in my classroom, I'd go around the room and they, you know, they'd ask, what do you want to be when you grow up, Johnny? And he'd be like, well, I want to be a policeman or a fireman or, you know, the usual. And, um, and I would... I said, I'm very proudly, I want to be a Walt Disney animator. And it's just, I I find it very weird because it's almost like a calling uh, to some people.
3: It kind of was. And we've talked about that a lot. uh, And a lot of people think that we all just kind of came together, all people of like mind came together at a certain time Mm -hmm. to do this second this so-called second renaissance of, of disney animation right we all had similar backgrounds and we all had similar feelings that kind of drew us to this and you know it it, it just seemed right um mm-hmm. you know i think those things kind of happen that way you know a lot mm-hmm. of people just saying uh, having the same kind of mindset and doing it you know if if all the conditions are right
2: right um, you know, we were talking a little bit before and, you know, I said, my main thing was the jungle book, but I loved all, the, I loved all the films. I loved Peter Pan when I first saw it. And I think that was, that was a film for you too, wasn't it? That you really loved with Peter Pan?
3: Yeah. Peter Pan, I saw it in reissue cause it was, it was made before I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw it in reissue in the sixties and I remember specifically noting the color and the luminous quality of of the film i mean even at an early age i might have been nine or ten um and and there's one scene in particular during the you can fly where they where they kind of they're they're on big on the uh, arms of big ben you know and, yes. and they take off and they fly forward in perspective and then they move from the camera moves above them and all of a sudden, it's this multiplane shot of clouds with this incredible depth, and on the big screen, it's absolutely breathtaking. I it's mean, a, it's so it's as exciting as any of these special effects that are done today. Wasn't um, was it, what's that mechanical? Eric? Completely mechanical. Right. And I remember the hair on the back of my neck standing up in that scene, and it still does. Yeah, and I see that on you know any, at any time. It's, it's a beautiful film. It's an animator's film. The the, the, the characters. Um, the level of animation they were doing, the color, the backgrounds, the music—everything about it—for for me, for my sensibility, works.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I think it's a wonderful film. I've always loved Peter Pan, and uh, I think that scene you're talking about was that, and that was an Eric Larson scene, wasn't it? Where they fly up to the. I'm king? not sure
3: who animated it, but I know that Ken O'Connor laid it out because mm-hmm. he talked about it. He was one of our teachers at Cal Arts, right? And he discussed how complicated it was to lay out that film. And I don't think people understand the complication that went into the elaborate scenes, not just the animation, but the planning uh, and even the music I've heard like different sections of the music from Alice and Wonderland, and how they would take a part from this recording and blend it with a part from this recording to make the final recording. Right. It's all in bits and pieces. And then somebody masterfully weaves this thing together so people just don't sit down and say okay we're going to make alice in wonderland it it's the work of hundreds of dedicated artists trying different things and failing and Mm -hmm. then finally succeeding the the objective is to visualize what you want to do and then find a way to do it rather than oh well that kind of works you know which is kind of the, the the thing they do now
2: uh, that would be kind of like a Hanna-Barbera thing, I would think, you know, where, you know, you just kind of just, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not Definitely saying, I, I'm not hair saying it's slopped. Yeah, to kind of I'm,
3: works. It kind of doesn't work, but who cares? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's what it became, I think. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, when a character was walking backwards and then, you know, Bill Hanna would say, well, we're going to have to truck into that and just, you know, cut the <laughs> legs out or something so that, you know, you know. <laughs> Yeah, And, and stuff yeah. like that happened, believe me, because uh, I've worked on stuff where we've had a we've had a cheat like crazy to kind of make something work because you just yes. don't have the time. Absolutely. But, but the I think the thing with Disney and I've I've tried to explain this before to to other people. It's not just the animation. It's the planning. It's a story. It's the color uh, styling. It's all these things that kind of work in unison just to give you the picture you know, yeah. to tell a story and then, you know, it, and then it's the voice acting and it's making sure that's correct. And then the, the music, the orchestration, the songs yeah. to make this as a, it becomes a totally different thing when it's all put together. Sometimes when you put this stuff together, you know, I'm sure when you're working on stuff, I know when I'm working on stuff, uh, when I was working on features and you are working the scene, it's kind of like, well, the scene's working, And then you get the in-betweeners through and you get the cleanup and you hope that pulls it together, you know, but when it's all kind of, when you take that and you cut it into the picture and you add the music and the sound effects and all this other stuff, it it becomes a totally different thing.
3: Yeah. It's a huge collaboration. And I I think that's something that's kind of, not quite grasped by people. Computers don't make it; they're not made by little elves in a hollow tree. Uh, they are actually <laughs> created by artists who are thinking. And you know, right. it, 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 it's. I think to me the Disney magic is that you can get all those artists together to make something that looks like it was done by one hand. It looks so effortless when it really isn't at all effortless.
2: It's not effortless. No, that's the illusion. Yeah, if
3: easy people would still do it, and they're not.
2: Right. Well, that's the mag- that's the magic, and you know, and a lot of people discount. Um, Walt Disney is kind of this figurehead, but he was basically, people have called him like the, the conductor of a, this magnificent orchestra. I've heard that used. Um, yeah.
3: it, you know, I never, was, I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I knew many people that did. Yeah. And they would concur that, you know, like him or not like him. And, you know, everybody has, you know, people who like and don't like, everybody respected what he brought to the table. Yes. Uh, except for now, it seems like it's easy to, when people aren't there to defend themselves, to take pot shots at them, um, you know, for whatever reason people have. Um, yes. He was a brilliant man. And I think that all the other studios, and I love the other studios, my influences are MGM, Warner Brothers, you know, all of the studios. I love all of their work. Sure. It was a wonderful time in animation. Mm-hmm. But they were all looking at Walt Disney. And what he was doing, because he was kind of leading the pack. Uh, and in many ways, the shorts done at other studios are much better than the shorts done at Disney. But Disney was pushing the art form. Right. Know, the features and whatnot to something that was way, way, way more sophisticated than anything that had been done before. And mark my word, I know i worked with these people, I've talked to these people right. as good as they were. In the shorts, they were looking to see what what the heck is Disney doing over there? Yeah, you know? and, well, and, and that's great because he rose us all up.
2: Hmm. But Disney ended up; he could make a really great short subject. He proved that in the 30s, okay. and and then he kind of the shorts kind of took a back seat for a little while. Yes. Until he got serious about them again, you know, like with I want I want to say pigs is pigs. Or Toot Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, uh, well, the, the, Melody. The, the,
3: the reoccurring characters seem to kind of stabilize. You know, after a while, they got to a point where you knew who they were, and you couldn't really deviate from that. So their hands were kind of tied, especially with someone like Nicky. Goofy had a little bit more leeway. Donald had his temper. Sure. Uh, but it was really the, the one-off ones that I remember the most, like uh, Susie the Blue Coop.
4: Yes.
1: Uh, mm-hmm.
3: You know, those shorts are remarkable and really charming. Um, Pigs is Pigs, as you mentioned, which is a brilliant short, I think. You know, when they were one-offs, mm-hmm. they seemed to, well, they were using it as a test ground for other things. Yes. Stylization, 3D, the widescreen, you name it. That's what the shorts became. And they that's what they were originally. The Silly Symphonies were mm-hmm. the testing ground for making that feature. You know, Snow White is a giant silly symphony.
2: Yes. Really. Well, the old and mill before it, they
3: used that again
2: yeah. very effectively. Right. Mm-hmm. The old mill I was saying and yes. uh which basically they're using that for effects for Snow White and then uh yes. Yes. Um, I'm I'm still trying to figure out Ben and Me though cuz it's one of my favorite Disney shorts. It's only about what 15 minutes. It's about Yeah, uh, it's charming. It's really well done. It could have been Part of like you know it looks like something out of Ichabod and Mr toad uh-huh. uh, to me, yeah um or it could have been in that feature, which I really that's another thing that I really love is Ichabod and Mr. Toad, I just love the mary yeah. Blair styling and and the yeah. animation is fun, you know, yeah. um, and the music is fun, so yeah, really great stuff let's see let's go okay, so let's go back, so you. You're watching this stuff. You really, you really enjoyed uh, *Alice in Wonderland* on TV. Uh, the one thing I wanted to mention to you was uh, the *March of the Cards*, uh, which is just a masterful piece of choreography. What do you think of that?
3: Well, what's remarkable is that without computers and without any kind of like mechanical uh, uh, work on that. It was visualized and conceived in motion just beautifully. I mean, it's it's stylized to the point where it's almost like kinetic art mm-hmm. to me. Yes. And when I look at it, you know, it it still astounds me because I know what it takes to do that. And I just go, I don't know if I would want to do that. Because people <laughs> aren't going to go, did you see those? People who aren't in animation, I'm sorry, right. would not say, did you see those cards? Right. Even though it's hard work, they would go, I really like the funny Cheshire Cat, <laughs> which was great too. Right. But I mean, it's like that kind of stuff is kind of unsung. Right. Because it was so labor intensive and so incredibly artistic mm-hmm. that I'll, I think it goes over a lot of people's heads. Uh, but, you know, people like you and I and other people who are interested in animation, we can go, wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty amazing.
2: I'm glad somebody else did that, and I didn't get stuck with that scene or whatever. Yeah. um Well,
3: when we worked at the studio, we used to be able to go down to the archives. We call it the morgue. It was it was on the lot. It was down underneath the ink and paint building, right? And you could literally hold these scenes in your hands and see the notes, and see notes on the peg holes, and see checking notes and stuff like that. And right. you could flip the cleanup. Sometimes there'd be roughs in there too, you know. Right. So there, it was very tangible. You could see the process, right? Which you don't see when you look at a film frame by frame.
2: It's it's pretty interesting. I was down there. Uh, yeah. I think Maurice. I think Maurice took me down there. Or yeah. no, no, no. It was a gentleman named Ken Boyer. I think we were on the lot. We went down, and oh yes, Ken I, was there briefly. Uh, yeah. I and I believe the the guy that was running the play he was a. Uh, you look like this uh, old janitor down there. That was uh, that was Leroy. Leroy, <laughs> L- not Anderson, right? Was his no, last no. name? What was Leroy, his last name?
3: Leroy was. I don't remember his last name anymore. But he was down there, and he was just like, it was his life.
2: I wonder and if he lived it was down dirty, there.
3: <laughs> kind of musty smelling place, and he was just that was his element, and he knew where everything was. Right, and he could find it. Wow, and it was amazing.
2: Yeah, I was just it. It was amazing because. It was all this great stuff in a in a dusty basement, and yeah. uh, so now now all that stuff is protected. I guess it's at the yeah. Animation Research Library, which is yes,
3: uh, yes.
2: yeah. I guess everything's uh-huh. in helium. And they something.
3: scanned a lot of it, you know, so yeah. that you can study it without actually holding it, because that stuff is you know they had stuff like from playing crazy down there that you yeah. could just hold, yeah. and a lot of it disappeared.
2: Yes, <laughs>
3: over time too.
2: Yes. Well, we won't, we won't say who we think that went to or who took it, but.
3: Uh, <clears throat> well, it's hard to say, you know, it was such, it was so lax that anyone of a number of people could have walked off with just about anything. Yeah. You know.
2: Well, I heard stories about them dumping cells. I guess there was a big bin outside and they were just yeah. in the 60s and 70s. They were just. Oh, yeah. Just dumping, like, all all these Aristocats cells or Jungle Book and because they needed to make money. Yeah, and
3: some people, Randy Cartwright rescued some, and he had a garage sale, and he was leaving to work on Little Nemo back in the 80s. And uh, he would sell you a cell from, like, Aristocats for, like, 11 cents.
2: Oh, my God.
3: that, it was really.
2: Oh, that's crazy.
3: He was was such a character. He is such a character.
2: He is such a character, Um,
3: yeah and uh you know those are some of the memories i have but they used to take those things i mean this is common knowledge for a while in the early days they would wash the paint off and reuse them to make new shorts because you know it was expensive um and then they started just like you know throwing them out or or um i think at hannah Barbera they used to drill a hole through them so that no one could use them again oh, wow. and then throw them out and some of them were saved right. usually it was the one from the title sequences because they would reshoot those sometimes if they got a new sponsor right um but uh, uh they would take some of the cells and they would put, they would put them out on the floor and they'd run down the hall and then slide them was a slip and slide an animator could slide them, wow. um, and you know they got destroyed that way sure uh, but fortunately some were saved. You know? Some
2: were saved. They sold a, a heap of them over at Disneyland uh,
3: yes, back in the 50s, 60s. And that's where 70s. a lot of them come from. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, the I, art for, fortunately, I have a few, so that's. Uh, but I think I think uh, anybody who really appreciates animation art will have at least one in their collection. Oh, you know, yeah, one prized one, and I, I mm-hmm. yeah, I, I know a lot of animators that had had sales from these things. What? Uh, when you decided you wanted to do this, were, were your parents uh, supportive, or what happened there?
3: Very, very. You know, you know, you know how parents are. You know that they want to develop your skills that that you know special skills. And you know, my sister was taking piano lessons, and she was very good. And so I I, I thought maybe I should take piano lessons. So they they started giving me piano lessons, mm-hmm. and I was I, I I understood music very well because it's very similar to animation. Yes, um, but. Uh, I I didn't have an aptitude for it, but I really did like making films and whatnot. And so my my parents got me a movie camera Mm -hmm. uh, and my grandfather would put in a little extra so they could get a better one, you know, and, and whatnot. And over time, you know, I would need to upgrade my equipment. And my parents and my grandparents were always there for me. They always made sure that if I earned half the money that they would put in half or they would it so that they could get a better quality thing you know, and this led to you know a sound projector a magnetic sound projector in the yep. early seventies yep. things like that that you know they just they had helped along the way, but it was still pretty much they left it up to me to decide what I wanted and to work towards it, mm-hmm. and then they would augment that wow. so yeah, I always felt very supported. At one point, my grandfather took me aside when I was in college because I was living with them in Jersey while I was going to school in Brooklyn for a while. Right. And he said, "What do you want to get into animation?" This is in nineteen seventy-six.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: What do you wanted to get in get into animation for? It's a dying art. You'll starve. And right. I-, I was always pretty respectful of my elders, and I, I was in this case too. But I, I said, "I don't care. It's what <laughs> I want to do." I remember saying that yeah. to him, and he, he yeah. you know, he looked at me and goes, "Fair enough. Yep. Fair enough. Yeah. You know." And fortunately, he was lucky enough to see that I was able to be successful, and it you know he they lived beyond beauty and the beast so right. they got they got to see that's great you know, success happen.
2: that's wonderful um yeah i'm i'm I was kind of the same way it was just i don't care i don't care I don't care yeah, if I have to I, live I, in a I box
3: that because yeah it was not like becoming a lawyer or a doctor or a, or even you know a, a middle manager or or a business person. At that time, it was a very risky thing. Oh, yeah. Animation was, in the mid-70s through the early 80s, was really in a horrible, hor- horrible doldrum.
2: Well, what I remember was basically, you know, you, you had people like Ward Kimball saying, you know, something along the lines of, hey, kid, you missed it.
3: Yeah, well, it's dead, you, know, you missed it.
2: It's dead, you know. It's you know it. That was the time. If you're going to be in it, that was the time because nobody nobody can make these things and make money, you know? So uh, that was the, uh, that was the thing I kept hearing was like, nobody's doing this anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's over and done with, you know, move, move on. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. think, I think it's people like you and uh, you know, you know, I'm going to mention Don Bluth because I think, you know, here's a guy that he, he wanted to do it. He wanted to kind of bring back, the, the look of great animation, you know, whether he succeeded or not, that's a whole other thing. But well, I think there were I a lot of people like that. He
3: light a fire. He, de- he definitely did light a fire. He was the kindling for all that was to come.
2: Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. With the secret of Nim, I believe. But, you know. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But, you know, I don't think he ever matched the secret of Nim in terms of quality. You know, I think uh, that came out. That was great. You know, maybe not the greatest film ever made, but it was, it had all the effects. It had, you know, it had beautiful looking artwork in it. And I think that's what got Spielberg. But
3: yeah. It was it. the first yeah. noteworthy film that made people go, wait, hey, what is this? You right.
2: Know? This can yeah. still be done like this because everything mm-hmm. was the, and I uh, don't get me wrong. I loved rescuers. I yeah, love the rescue. I loved was, Robin it Hood.
3: On the, it was on the cheap. Yeah yeah it really was and mm-hmm. i noticed too you know that we didn't have world all music and stuff like that i love the film too i really love milk stuff in it i really like the characters it's of an era it definitely is right and i have to tell you when i went to see that in the theater they had some the opening titles had um chalk paintings done by mel shaw that were beautiful yes but they they would put like boat on a separate level and they just slide it across slide
2: across, yeah.
3: and i when i saw the titles i was absolutely horrified i go oh my god <laughs> it looks horrible but that was just for the titles yeah it means you know i thought oh my god they cheaped out so much it looks it looks worse than television and then they cut to that opening shot of new york harbor and you see the tugboat with the real uh, you know fully animated waves and whatnot on it and, and, and you right. go oh thank god
2: <laughs> somebody did something yeah. <laughs> yeah, it scared the hell out of me. You know? <laughs> it no, it did. Well, actually, i I thought the um, I thought the titles for uh, the rescuers were probably the cheapest. Uh, and I'm not talking about the Mel Shaw's artwork is excellent.
3: Mark, Mel Shaw's artwork is beautiful. Yes, it's not. It's not that it was the way it was used. Right. And animated.
2: Hey, look. You know, when I look back at 101 Dalmatians, okay. And they had this wonderful animated title sequence, um, and you know, this wonderful jazzy beat, there's an energy to that. And the rescuers, you know, they had this very sullen song, you know, rescue me. Yeah. And, uh, and the titles just felt, you know, it's like the card, it, it was just title cards just slapped on, you know, um, and, and. But I happen to like the film. I happen to like the film, and yeah, I kind of went with nice. it. But, I mean, even when, like, Robin Hood had these very plain title cards, you know. Yeah. And um, uh, I think Aristocats had better titles to it, which yeah. were a, a lot more interesting. But it just seemed like they're cheapening out on the, the titles for these things, you know. And, it was
3: really that kind of era. It's like nobody was really paying attention yeah. to the films at that time. right. Which is sad because there's some really great animation in them. You know, the guys were still at the in their A game, right? Uh, But you know, things times were changing from the mid six from the early 60s to late 60s. Society changed dramatically. Yes, and it just kind of limped along through the 70s. Thank God for Rescuers because that was one of the ones where people went like, "Oh, this could be something that uh, that everyone can enjoy."
2: Yeah. It actually made yes. mo- it made money, right? Yeah. It went out there and it yes. made a decent decent amount of money. It made it Yeah,
3: but I think Milt was a, a, a high critic of it. I I I think Milt could see the handwriting on the wall. Yeah. Uh, on on that film. And although he did absolutely incredible stuff, mm-hmm. beautifully drawn and everything like that, I think that I think that was kind of it for him. He just said, I'm done. Right. You know.
2: Well, I think he was animating most of the Medusa, and any other scenes yeah. of uh, Medusa were probably yeah, Cliff, and, and Cliff Norberg. Cliff Norberg, yeah, <laughs>
3: more of the action stuff. But
2: That's it was right. kind of
3: Milt's swan song.
2: Yeah, but it it, it is some great animation. Oh, really, it's,
3: yeah, it's gorgeous, and there's beautiful work done on 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 the mice too. The, oh. it, it, it's really nice, but you know, it, it it didn't feel lush or lavish. Right, it felt. It felt okay. But, yeah, you know, it just—it was not—not not what you would come to expect from a Disney film.
2: I from a, yeah, at that at that time. But you know, yeah. I think I think uh, I was just hoping that it would just keep going on, and even even in that state, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened there? So you okay? So you were determined. So uh, you went to Pratt, and then you went to. Cal, how did you get into Cal Arts?
3: Well, I was at Pratt for two years. And, you know, you have to remember, you have to put it in, in historical context, mm-hmm. um, there weren't a lot of schools that thought animation. Animation was not a household word. People did not think of it as a profession. It was just this thing that was done and a mm-hmm. cartoon would come on every once in a while, you know. Right. And, right. Um, you know, the books hadn't been made. No one was buying cells, you know. And um, so... I had my choice of maybe a handful of schools at that time. And one of them was Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York, which is an excellent, excellent art school still is to this day. Yes. Um, or Cal arts. And I, you know, Cal arts was fairly new and I went, I don't really feel like I want to go all the way across country. So I went to New York,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, and I got into Pratt, which was not easy because, um, they're they were extremely high quality school. And, um, Eric Goldberg had gone there. And I think Tom Sito was also there. Um, and
2: uh, well, I know Sito went to School of Visual Arts, but I don't know. You know, I'll yeah, tell you a story. I'll tell you a story in a way.
3: They have, they may not have, but I'm sure he knows of it. Right. If he didn't go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I went to um, Pratt and I was there for a year. The, the first semester you have to do foundation art, which is just really great because it immerses you in everything, photography and everything. And then you can start branching off into your things. So by the end of my first year, the second semester of my first year, I was able to take some animation classes and they were pretty rudimentary. And I realized pretty quickly that the people that were teaching it weren't necessarily great animators. Mm -hmm. And I felt like in my own studies and my books and the own work I'd done, I actually was, I actually, well, one of the teachers said, Dave, you know more about animation than I do. He says, I, I work here. I do commercials. He says, but the industry's in California. If you really want to make it as an animator in the industry, you need to go to California. Right. And that was what made me go. After my second year at Pratt, I said, I guess I'm going to have to apply at CalArts. So I applied and and I got accepted.
4: Mm-hmm. Again,
3: it was very difficult to get into. I don't understand, but I got in. Right. And um, so I made plans to go to california the next year and i never came back
2: wow what what year was that when you went
3: 78 79 right something like that yeah yeah, yeah. and i and i worked a little bit at, you know i did freelance at filmation of barbera and a few uh, of the commercial houses right um to make money sure um usually during the summer but my focus was on the classes and Kalash was still a wonderful school then. They still had people who knew what they were doing teaching the classes. Uh, so, who was still? It was, still, who, it was who, expensive, but it was still relatively affordable. I got a free scholarship. Wow. They paid everything. Uh, and it, it was a wonderful experience to sit back and learn from these wonderful people who was uh, who had, who had basically invented the animation that we loved. Right. You so, T. He and Elmer Plummer and right. Bill Moore was an absolutely brilliant design teacher. Right. Um, Hal uh, they were all like these people that you knew. Right. And they would bring in cells and just, you'd hold them, you know? Wow. And they'd talk about what it was like and what the mindset was. It wasn't just a technical class. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Mm-hmm. It was what to think and then how to express. Let's see. And when I went into teaching, that was the first thing I thought about in a world that wants numbers do this 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 and this Mm -hmm. i was trying to teach them much more than that which was to think right and i don't know how valued that is right now
2: (laughs) well let's create they're trying to teach you creativity how to use your brain and create new things you
3: you know you can teach people to draw and you can teach people to do all those things certain people are much more talented than others. certain people pick up, pick it up. Some people are naturally gifted. Mm-hmm. Some people work at it, but you can teach that, but it's, those are tools. Right. And you know, software too, they're tools. It's, it's the mind and, and how to think imaginatively and how to make something entertaining right and recognizable to people you know i just watched before we came on i watched a short from zagreb 1961 Mm -hmm. uh and it was about this it's all done in a kandinsky style Mm -hmm. and it's limited full animation but it's absolutely gorgeous um i wish i could remember the title of it but it's this little man and he goes to the beach and everything's inflatable and his car deflates and it's just, it's absolutely brilliant because it's so funny and so imaginative. Is
2: and that Monroe? I,
3: I said they could make this in, in flash or in harmony or so, so easy, but they just focus on the movement. They don't focus on the imagination and the entertainment, right? That's what's missing.
2: That's the important thing.
3: Yeah. Um, and, and so you see this from 1961 I, I or 59 I think and it won the Academy Award I think and it's absolutely great but it's not like it's not Disney I'm not a a Disney fanatic uh, I was lucky enough to work and do that quality of work but my influences come from the early Hanna-Barbera stuff it's the sensibility it's the sense of humor I know it's not good animation but it's good characters right and you know and 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 I loved um the M I love the Hollywood cartoon. I like the MGM shorts, the Tom Jerry's, the Tex Avery's, right. Uh, uh, the Dick Lundy's, you know, Michael law. Um, I like, uh, all of the Warner brothers stuff. I mean, all of those directors were absolutely brilliant and it's amazing that they were able to do such brilliant cartoons for so long one right after the other. And they're, they're all little gems. Um, and all of that stuff. I like the stuff that was being done in Europe. Um, Mm -hmm. Fi- I just like cartoons. Yeah. And the film
2: that you're talking about, it, it, I keep thinking Monroe, which is uh, Gene Deitch directed it. No,
3: that was good, too. No, this yeah. is it's it, it's 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 later than that. Right. Uh, um, and it's gosh, I wish I could remember. OK. The little guy, he hums this little song to like. Because <speaks laughs> they're talking. It's just pantomime. But it's hilarious. Wow. I'll send you the link.
2: OK, cool. Yeah. Cool.
3: 'Cause it's 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 really fun and really funny.
2: Wow. I really uh yeah, I love some I love some of those films. I you know, the I'm a big fan of Chuck Jones. I love, Yes, me uh, too. And uh so like, you know, a film like What's Opera Doc, which really
3: Yeah.
2: But even like uh uh How the Grinch Stole Christmas, what he was able to do with that. And of course, yeah, we but
3: you know, I like I love Chuck's later stuff, but mm-hmm. I really like his middle stuff.
2: Nineteen forty, you know, it's less, yeah, he he got a
3: technique that was that was a signature look, which I love. Mm-hmm. But some of the stuff he did in the thirties and forties was was really good. Like the one with the mon the the monster, yes, the yes. Those are pretty great and some of the three bears ones that he did yes the expressions are absolutely oh, priceless
2: yeah and that's,
3: it's it's a little bit before he he created that signature look in the 50s
2: when i wor- everybody
3: love everybody knows him and loves and i do too oh yeah but there's something that he did in his not the sniffles era it's post sniffles right uh but there's some he made some really great Waikiki Rabbit is one that sticks out in my mind. Yeah,
2: I was just about to say that. It was Ken Harris because was he. He's got
3: really weird stylized backgrounds. Yeah. But the characters are very fully treated. <laughs> but really funny stylized humor. I'm just thinking of some, some Mac. Oh, I <laughs> you think know, they're really funny. The characters. Going on
2: on on. <laughs> 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 well, the characters are trying to eat each other. I think that's. Uh, it's really really <laughs> funny. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. I just love his stuff. The three bears cartoons are hysterical. There's one called um, Oh gee, oh, I can't. I can't even think of the names of them right now. But they're, they made about five of them, and yes. uh, there's one uh, about Father's Day where they're, they're yes. Which is there
3: for punishment, I think.
2: I, yes, I think that's it. I think that's, I think the that's title. it. But there's a couple of them like that. And uh yes. yeah, and uh b- but they're absolutely historical, but basically he's beat you know, the father is beaten the, the son. He's like mm-hmm. you know, hitting him in the it, face. It, it's a little
3: but... disturbing sometimes by today's standards, but I just love the vocal performances of Billy Bletcher, uh Stan Freeberg, mm-hmm. and and Jute and B. Benadera that's as, right as the mother they are so funny
2: they're so good in it yeah and it's yeah. just it's mike maltese and and uh chuck jones at their best doing yeah. that stuff yeah. and ken
3: harris is great brilliant animation you know because yeah. because chuck had like uh, i've seen chuck's layouts and they're amazing i mean everything is there pretty yes. much but he still gave the animators leeway to bring stuff to it and Some of Ken Harris's dance stuff is outrageously good.
2: Oh, it's historical. Um,
3: Just, you know, amazingly good.
2: Well, I think it's, you know, we're talking about entertainment, right? So it's like every one of those scenes has like some twinkle to it. You know, it's like, it's either a funny piece of animation or it's just like a, a a neat expression with just a little, you know, a little eye move or an eyebrow, you know, Mm -hmm. just kind of highlighting it. And, uh, that's the brilliance of Chuck Jones, knowing what to move and what not to move, and then exactly.
3: And that's the thing about the early Hanna Barbera stuff that I like. Those guys knew full animation. Yes. So they they knew exactly what needed to be there and what didn't, and it's the same thing with Chuck. Yes. You know he he just he kept honing his craft and honing his craft and honing his craft until so it was exactly bare bones what he needed, but not for economy. Right. It was for aesthetic and and creative and reasons.
2: And effect. That was the yes. difference, I think. I think you're right. I know mm-hmm. it no, you're absolutely right on that. Mm-hmm. Um okay, let's let's fast forward because we're talking about all these wonderful people. You were CalArts for what, 2 years?
3: Yes. They pulled me uh, when I finished my second film. They were my understanding was what I was told later was that they wanted to pull me out after my first year. But I hadn't worked with sound yet. Right. And they thought, let's leave him in for another year and let him make his sound film. Right. And then we'll pull. Well, in the course of that year, mm-hmm. there was the big walkout at Disney. Oh, that's right. The,
2: the, the animator strike, right?
3: And that left a gigantic hole in production. Yeah. So... They had pulled some really great top talent from the school in the class before us. Right. And the next year, they had a big hole to fill. And they pulled about 12 or 13 of us That at the end of that year. And they, showed, they put our reels in and they take it to the studio and they show, the, show it to the producer's and whatnot. And they make decisions on who they wanted to bring over to the studio to train with Eric Larson. Right. Um, and, uh, in that year they pulled them about 12 or 13 of us, only three of us came from the class. I was in the rest of them were from the class that were one, that was one semester advanced from us. Right. Um, but everybody was really excited about that. And, Mm -hmm. uh, we got to go over and work with Eric for several months and then they, you know, I think they picked up everybody. Right, uh, and, and put us on production, and it was it was a very exciting time, I have to say. Even though the films were in the doldrums, you know, we worked on Mickey's Christmas Carol you know, The Black Cauldron had its own set of troubles, uh, and the studio was really mired in another era, um, right. and it needed it needed some some uh, change. Um, so, you know, the actual it was just thrilling to be there. But at the same time, you kind of, there was a lot of stress because there was always this threat that they were going to close it down, right. hospital takeovers, you know, it was, it was a tumultuous time, but we were still learning and growing and that was very exciting. So I choose to remember that over a lot of the, gee, are we going to be here tomorrow? You right. Know? Because that's kind of what it was like. And yeah, I because- have to say when they kicked us off the lot, right. uh, off the main lot and put us in warehouses in Glendale. That did not bode well.
2: Right. How'd you feel? I was going to ask you, how was it like to work with Eric Larson? But uh, I want to get to that question, which is how'd you feel when, you know, I think that was being planned for a while that they're going to move you guys off the lot and they're going to put you in your own, they're going to take uh, over that it animation It happened pretty building.
3: quickly after um, the new management came in. Right. Uh, the uh, Eisner-Wells-Katzenberg um, thing. It happened pretty quickly because they were courting, New people they were you know, it wasn't just they weren't just responsible for animation. That was a studio and they they need they needed to revitalize the live action stuff. Um, and honestly, given the the level of production that we started doing after, uh, Cauldron and whatnot, it was the building wasn't big enough. Right. And so they used it. They knocked out walls and made offices for people like Medler And people like that, you know, right. that people they were, you know, bringing in, mm-hmm. um, outside of the building still looks identical the, you know the, the compound looks very similar to this day right uh and it's beautiful even though we were in warehouses i i don't think we ever made better films i said it at that time i don't think we'll ever make better films than we're making in these warehouses right and i don't we know ne- we never did yeah you know the, the real the the few that the handful that i consider to be real masterpieces at that time uh were all done in those warehouses right. in glendale
2: I'm just I'm just going to stop you for a second because I you know the audience that we have some of them are young we got we got people all over the place we got people listening to this in their 70s and 80s and, wow. and uh and then we have the the youngsters the um that are just fascinated with animation and uh, I just want to say the Disney animation studio basically uh had been in a number of different places it had been in Los Angeles and then uh it, it moved from a garage to uh, almost like a strip. I want to say like a little strip mall. It's just a series of buildings on Kingswell Avenue. Uh, and it was just like a, you know, it could have been a shoemaker, you know, in yeah. there. And yeah. that that was the Walt Disney the Studio. You know? Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. And then eventually they moved into some uh, some place on Hyperion Avenue, which was once yes. again, yeah. some and bungalows. They, yeah, well, know? it grew. It grew, and
3: that's where they made up to Pinocchio, I think, and Fantasia. Yes, they really didn't move. uh, They really didn't move into the Burbank facility until 1941.
2: Yeah, because it took 4041. It took a couple of years to build.
3: Yeah, it did, (laughs) but it was state of the art, and it's still beautiful.
2: Yes. No, I I was there maybe last time, maybe about seven years ago, seven or ten years ago. Been there a long time, yeah.
3: It's. I I always loved being on campus and going to the commissary and right. walking to the sound stages on breaks. It was great.
4: Yeah.
2: And I, I really loved the back lot because I grew up on the. The
3: back lot was wonderful. Yeah, and right. unfortunately, it's all gone. Now. It's gone now. Yeah. maybe a handful of buildings, but um,
2: uh, yeah, it
3: was big. You know, you bo- you you could go on a fifteen-minute break and you could go walk around the world. You know, you'd be the Zorro set and uh, the Middle <laughs> Eastern set, and right. the, the Passamaquoddy set from from Peach Peach Dragon, Dragon. And, right? And and the, the you know, that the, darn the, cat. The, the, yeah, the garage where the Nutty Professor made flubber, you know.
2: Right, right. <laughs> it was all there. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to walk on that lot before they started tearing it down, and I was like, I'm walking around the lot, and I'm like, I know this area, I know this, and but they reused a lot of those buildings for different things, but um, I just, I, I just want to continue with the thought: the Walt Disney Studio and the uh, animation. The animation basically stayed on the lot. They built specially constructed buildings, I guess to get the most available light in. I guess that's the way those buildings were constructed and just yes. for animation. And Walt's office was on the 3rd floor, correct, of the animation building? Yes, yes and and, it still is. Yeah.
3: They they redid it.
2: Yes. So they kind of restored it now, but I think uh, Ron Miller took it over during the 70s, I guess. And, yeah, it yeah. had
3: gone through several owners, uh, yeah. and eventually, eventually they, they managed to get, you know, through photographs, they were able to recreate the entire office as it was.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. But, uh, so what year uh, were, were you kicked off the lot? It was 84 or 85?
3: It was 85, 86, yeah. I think. Late 85. 80- I remember, we. I remember it was a very difficult time for everyone. We really thought that was it, and yeah. I remember I wrote a song based on the tune of um, uh, "Oh What a oh, oh What a Merry Christmas Day," uh, the theme from uh, Mickey's
2: uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol. Era.
3: I wrote Oh it a lousy christmas day. Uh, <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> and it all had it all dealt with the us, them kicking us off the lot. Right. And uh you know that that was kind of the, the overall sentiment. Right. Uh at that time was we were feeling pretty put out. Yeah. Literally put out. Uh and
2: uh Well you're being pushed away from the studio. So yeah, you know you were the hardest. It of... was probably yeah.
3: December of 85 and then they moved us off in, in like by February 1986 wow they did it in waves yeah we didn't all go at once it was like okay this group's going over now this group's going over
4: Didn't
2: at
3: ink that out, point we were working on Great Mouse Detectives
2: didn't ink and paint stay in the lot for a while
3: it uh, did because <clears> by that yeah no I, you know I, I can't remember it, we were kind of compartmentalized but I do believe they had like color models and whatnot. Uh, in the warehouses and i'm fairly sure well, maybe they did you know back then they ground their own pigments and everything like that that all came to an end too so that right. may have been in phase two right that they they got rid of them because you know then they moved to um cartoon color uh, instead of making their own pigments
4: uh, right. on the
3: lot and then they went to color by deluxe rather than color by technicolor right uh and that was a disaster because it cost less but apparently my understanding was oliver and company was shot in deluxe right and it made somehow the process of the deluxe uh shooting made the the the, the xerox lines dark and and really really thick Yikes. and it just looked bad so right. they went back and they remastered it uh in three strip uh not not so much three strip but progressive you know ycm uh technicolor basically right uh and it was and that softened it right um, for subsequent releases but you know there was a lot of technical stuff that went on during then beyond just moving artists around you know they they were trying to save money everywhere they could and uh it was taxing
2: the reason the reason why I think uh like the Xerox unit, which was basically a it's not the normal you know, today you think of Xerox and you think about going into like a you know, it's a machine where you put you know, stick the the piece of paper on it.
3: No, this was a huge photographic thing. It this was, was gigantic.
2: Yes, it was a basically a vertical machine which Yeah, took, it
3: was kind of like a multiplane yes. thing. And yeah. then they would char electrically charge the cell, and the place where the lines were, the, this powdered stuff would stick right. to them. And then, you know, so they dip it in this powder stuff right. and then take it off and dust it off and, and the line would stay right. on the cell because of the electra, uh, electrostatic charge. That's my understanding of it. I'm that, sure this is much better. I was actually
2: watching them do it.
3: Yeah, we too. It, yeah. You know? yeah, and, and i, I was like, a lot. Of, I hate to say it's terrible, and I—I I, I don't mean to laugh, right? Uh, but it just seems so bizarre. a lot of people died of cancer that worked on uh, in Xerox.
2: Oh my god!
3: Of, not just at Disney, but in in a number of different studios.
2: Right. Yikes!
3: And they people always thought, was there something dangerous about that process? I guess we'll never know.
2: Yeah, we'll never know.
3: And know. then they switched. You know, by rescuers down under, it was all.
2: In, uh, computer. digital. Yeah. Digital and yeah. paint. Mm-hmm. But I just remember watching the process and it was like a three, I think it was a three step process. It was, you put the drawing, yeah. you take the picture onto the, the plate and then yeah. you had to put, you know, I guess the, the cell had to be put down on it and then they yeah. had to run the powder through it. And so maybe, maybe more than a three step process, but, yeah. but it just looked so cumbersome and, you know, and, you know, didn't a put that thing together? I heard of iWorks actually sure. developed think, the... I think so.
3: Yeah. He was involved in so many of the processes, you know, he, that they used at the studio. He was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant yeah. man. You know, brilliant animator, brilliant man.
2: Right. Because he was still... He animated some stuff on... Uh, what was it? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea back in the 50s, didn't mm. he? Some effects yeah. stuff? Yeah, well,
3: he was involved in, in, you know, developing the sodium vapor vapor process to combine live action and animation more right. effectively in, in color. Um, you know... He was just, you know, he when he had his own studio, he made a multiplane camera out of a, the body of a Model A Ford. Wow! You know, in the 1930s, before he even had color. Right. You know, it, it's 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 quite something. Yeah. He, his his contributions were really remarkable, and I think Walt, I think Walt recognized it later in life.
2: Well, he was instrumental. He he was part of the audio animatronics team, yes, wasn't he? he. You know, making that uh, he work. Was, he
3: had his, he <clears> was a brilliant, sci- he had his brilliant scientific mind. Yeah. Uh, and he definitely made his presence known at that studio.
2: Yeah, absolutely. From everything from the true life adventures to the fe- yeah. the feature films yeah. and yeah. when it, you know, so, you know, we think, you know, a lot of people think of him as just the, you know, the guy that animated the first animated sound cartoon. Yeah, and uh, he was so much more than that. And uh, yeah, just,
3: well, you know, yeah. his work on on uh, skeleton dance is pretty remarkable. Yeah, you know, the uh, and, and you know his work at um, on the flip the frog series and and, and whatnot and Willy Whopper, and, and, you know, at MGM. Yes, it's pretty good too. It was kind of cutting edge at that time, right? Um, you know, because that was pretty early on. But I don't know that he had the story sense, right? That Or timing sense that walt had and i think like you know we'll go back to it a million times but that's what walt brought to his visionary his vision right Um, it was less technical and more how can we push this medium you know i think fantasia they still don't know how they did some of the scenes in that yeah there's stuff that they did that they just they were inventing on the fly
2: yeah there is, uh, in the Hall of Presidents in Walt Disney World, it's probably one of the last things that my work did, because he died in, what, 71, 72? Yeah. yeah. He, he died somewhere around the time when Roy Disney passed away. Yeah. Um, he did the, he created the effect where a bunch of clouds in the background of the presidents turn into, the, it turns into the American flag.
3: Oh, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah,
2: And, it was, uh, a pretty amazing effect,
3: yeah, it is. It's very effective. Yeah. They used it years later in the um, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln here at Disneyland. Yeah. And it always impressed me because it starts with clouds mm-hmm. and a sunset. And it slowly, as he makes his speech, right. it slowly evolves into a flag.
2: Right. But it's still it's still clouds. It's still clouds. But it's just the... Yeah, yeah. But But the, uh, you know, people are listening to this and they're going... Hey that's that's cake they can do that easy with computer technology but back then it wasn't this was a really amazing effect yes that he came up with mm-hmm. so or somebody yeah. came up with and he basically made right. it happen so
3: everybody you know everybody needs to realize that you know it had to start somewhere right you know and just because it seems archaic by standards today mm-hmm. as it rightfully should yeah It's still impressive when you think, okay, we got to do this. How are we going to do it?
2: Right. And then the Disney wizards figured it out. Like the Haunted Mansion to me is amazing. Uh, It's
3: still astounding. It's it's, still one of my favorite attractions. I go on it and I just, I still go, this is just so wonderful.
2: It's so wonderful and so believable. And Mm -hmm. uh, the illusion is so complete. I I just want to talk a little bit about Eric Larson because I think, um, Eric Larson, you know, you hear about Milt call, you hear about, you know, a little bit about Eric Larson, uh, you hear about Frank and Ollie, of course, you know, they got their own film and, um, you know, John Lounsbury is a guy that I know you didn't work with him, but I know people that, you know, Don Bluth talks about John Lounsbury as if he's a god. That's you know? pretty, that's you
3: know? pretty wonderful. I, I, his, yeah. I, he's one of my go-to animators. You know,
2: he's, at stuff. his drawings are wonderful. They're just, so yeah. you look at it and Absolutely. just go, Oh, I can do that. I can do but you can't <laughs> or because
3: stuff, John yeah. Darling, you know, in um, uh, Peter Pan, the father Pan. Yes. or Tony and, and, uh, you know, the two, the two Italian guys. Yeah. In, uh, yeah. In Laying the tramp.
2: It's just really beautiful it's, stuff. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. Yeah. And I mean, he just had a way brilliant, with his line. His line had weight to it. It just, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just this tremendous flow to yeah. it. Yeah. Just an amazing guy
3: really wonderful.
2: But um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Eric because uh, Eric is kind of the guy that mentored this whole generation, you know, this from the seventies through the eighties the brought these, yeah. brought everybody along to, yeah. because mm-hmm. Frank and Ollie were done by what? 79, 77, 78? Well,
3: they took a different route. They, they, they were done with, with animating at the studio, but, but, they did a lot of great work by writing these incredible books. Oh, yeah. Uh, I still think, you know, people talk about a lot of different animation books that influence them. And whatever influences you and, tr- and and it motivates you is great. But I, for me, a book that is misunderstood by a lot of people who aren't really into animation is The Illusion of Life. Because yeah. I've read it, you know, I read it when it first came out. You know, I was there when they were d- writing it. Mm-hmm. They gave me a copy, a signed copy, when I first uh, when it first came out, and um, I have another cop. I have one that I just keep that I don't even open. It's <laughs> like it's like a Bible or something like that. Well, it and is. And I have one that I, I do you know dog dog hair and, and put notes in. But right. the first time I read it, I understood it. Mm-hmm. But it's like onion layers. I, I've read it four or five times over the years, and even after I was an animator, I would read
4: it. Yeah.
3: I, I, you get a different level of understanding every time you read it. It's like a, this gift to the animators of the future. Right. Uh, so that was their approach to teaching. Some people just went off, or some people went over to um, WDI. Um, and Eric stayed and was the person who trained the young people when they came in. Almost everybody that came in in the 70s, mid 70s to the, uh, Mid '80s, right. Uh, went through Eric's training program, right. Uh, and he was hands-on. He was right there, sitting. I can still see him there, sitting behind that big desk in his office. And his office hadn't changed since 1959. I mean, he still had color model cells from Sleeping Beauty. Wow. Uh, on his bulletin board. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can I can visually see them. Um, but Eric was one of those people who was very quiet and very humble and very soft spoken. Uh, and I don't think many people realize it, but he was actually a very important figure in the development of the studio. He directed sequences in a number of pictures and, you know, you don't hear a lot about him as being like one of the buzzword nine old men, but his stuff is very, very excellent. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was a very good drafts person, very quiet, very patient, but he was not front and center. You know, he was not a look at me, look at me kind of person. Right. He was a a quiet, thoughtful person. That's how I know him best. Right. Um, and he, like, he went head to head with uh, <laughs> uh, Milk Call on uh, um, Sleeping Beauty. He was one of the directors of Sleeping Beauty, mm-hmm. uh, sequence directors. And uh, Milt wanted a bigger nose on the prince, and uh, and Eric said no. Right. And so Eric you know, Milt would draw this nose on, on the prince, and Eric <laughs> would have it toned down in the cleanup. And then <laughs> Milt would go back in and change it back again. Right. And it went on and on. And that was uh, the only time I can remember hearing that Eric got really, he got his feathers ruffled, because most of the time he was unflappable. Right. Uh, but apparently that was a big deal. And eventually Eric won, because he was the director of that Once Upon a Dream Sequel.
0: Do you have any questions or comments about the podcast? Please email Brian at Cartoonerific.com. Your email may be featured in one of our future shows.
2: Well, thank you, Dave, for that wonderful interview. We're going to have Dave back next week for part two. Yes, it is a two-parter. So please come back for that. Yes, it's the end of another Cartoonerific Podcast. Anyway, I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, I hope you got something out of it today. Uh, Next week, like I said, more with Dave. Anyway, if you really like what you're listening to, please subscribe. All you have to do is go to your favorite uh, podcast source there and click on the subscribe button, and you'll be notified every time a podcast is uploaded for your enjoyment. If you really like what you're listening to, please tell a friend. Yes, it's very important to me. Please do that. Let everybody know that the Cartoonerific podcast is really cool to listen to. And if you don't think it's cool to listen to, then just don't say anything, please. Anyway, I want everybody to have a great day. I want you to have a great week. And once again, thank you so much for tuning in.
0: See ya. This has been a Cartoonerific Studios presentation.
2: The Cartoonerific Podcast is copyright 2024 by Cartoonerific Studios Incorporated. All rights reserved.